Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Banks, host of Leadership Luminaries, a PeopleSmart production. PeopleSmart provides innovative learning solutions, both virtual and in person, to organizations in many countries, cultures, and languages, focusing on leadership and people development in the context of digital transformation, change management, culture change, and the increasing need for emotional intelligence. My guest today is Leanne Davy, and uh, today we'll be talking about positive conflict, applying conflict frameworks to hybrid work and return to office situations, and managing the emotions that accompany any conflict scenario. So it's going to be juicy stuff, um, dear to my heart themes. So uh, a little bit about uh, Leanne. She is a New York best uh, New York Times best-selling author of three books, including The Good Fight: Use Productive Conflict to Get Your Team and Your Organization Back on Track, and You First: Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along, and Get Stuff Done. Oh yeah, I know that. Okay, she's a contributor to the Harvard Business Review and frequently called on by media outlets for her experience on leadership, team effectiveness, and productivity. As the co-founder of Three Co's Inc., she advises companies such as Amazon, TD Bank, Walmart, UNICEF, 3M, and Sony. Leanne has, uh, Leanne has a PhD in organizational psychology. Well, it really is my pleasure to... Uh, to introduce Leanne, and thank you very much for being here today and accepting my invitation to be on the show. Thanks, so, Michael. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, welcome. And of course, you're in Toronto, right? I am in Toronto. In Canada. We like to have an international array of guests. <laughs> we, we haven't yet had anyone from Canada. So. Well, I'm very excited to be representing, especially I'm going to set the wrong tone because Canadians generally, culturally, we're very bad at conflict. So maybe I'll leave people with the impression that Canadians are good at conflict, but um, but it's not true. <laughs> is it? Is it do, are they sort of got a bit of the English in them or the British, which is uh, where it comes to conflict, the Brits tend to be a bit overly nice. Yes. Right. Yeah, we we have a lot of that. There's there's a lot of British in in so much of Canadian culture. Um, and yes, we we are very nice and civil to your face, but we have a passive aggressive problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, uh, I can't comment. I have no experience. <laughs> Don't. Uh, but it sounds like the Brits. Um, so the first question I've, I've got here is, uh, around using conflict for good. People tend to default, I think, to the negative when, when you talk about conflict. Oh, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. Um, but what is a good fight? Why is it necessary? And how do we make productive conflict a habit rather than an event? 
Yeah. So let's just start with a definition. So as you say, when we hear the word conflict, we often think of war and, you know, fights that end marriages and all these negative things, Um, people screaming in the workplace and, and lots of aversive, problematic things. So conflict is simply the struggle between incompatible and opposing needs, wishes, and demands. And those happen a hundred times a day in an organization. We so frequently have incompatible or opposing needs, wishes, and demands. And in fact, organizations uh, are built to have incompatible uh, demands. Uh, you know, you want your customers want the product to be better and cheaper. <laughs> you want to make more profit. Your shareholders want to make more profit. You know, that's <laughs> that's the foundational uh, tension of an organization. But there are many, many, many that go from there. So what we need to do is to understand those conflicts that are inherent within an organization, whether they be those business tensions, which is that different stakeholders want different things, balancing things like we want to innovate and we want to mitigate risk. That polarity is evident all day, every day. Um, So there's business level conflicts then organizations are made of humans. And as long as they are, we'll see where AI goes. And I I feel confident that (laughs) organizations are going to be made of humans for the rest of my lifetime. And then we've also got conflicts between how I like to do things and how you like to do things or how I want to be treated. Um, In any one meeting, there's the person who just loves the concrete, tangible detail. And just as they're getting happy, the person who likes to keep it high level and keep things moving is starting to become disgruntled. So we've got conflict and opposing needs, wishes, and demands in our interpersonal relationships. And then all the way to Um, you know, we need to advocate for ourselves. We want flexibility. We want promotions. We want plum assignments. um, And that need to stand up for ourselves and advocate for ourselves in the face of, you know, many other competing and opposing um, people's needs, wishes, and demands. So at every level, organizations are hotbeds of conflict, but none of those is inherently a bad thing. Uh, Many of those conflicts are very helpful, very important. And so what we need to do is understand the difference between those tensions that are about optimizing scarce resources in a system, optimizing relationships, differentiating between that and what I call friction, which is unproductive conflict, conflict that is personal, conflict that wears us down, conflict that doesn't have resolution, um, you know, those kinds of conflicts, which are very negative. So, you know, that that's a big answer to say conflict is not what we think it is. It's simply a struggle between incompatible and opposing needs, wishes, and demands. Those exist at every level in organizational life. And if we can understand that, embrace that, learn to have conflict effectively, and then minimize these other forms of conflict that are very unhealthy, we would all be in much better shape. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, actually, uh, I think we're probably going to get to this a bit later. Um, As you were finishing up there, I was thinking, gosh, well, what about 
what you're talking about really is taking the emotion in a certain sense out of the conversation so that you can see clearly, hear clearly, um, think clearly. Uh, and I know that that's something that you're going to be uh, discussing with me a bit later. And it's actually, it is a, a passion of mine to help people to be able to manage their their emotions. And it certainly is at the heart of um, managing conflict uh, or just managing differences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, so. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a fun conversation. I'm going to argue for not, um, not uh, having removing emotions, but in fact, factoring them in. So we'll talk about that when we get to that. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so uh, applying conflict frameworks to hybrid work and return to office situations. How do we, this is, this is the nitty gritty. How do we give feedback if someone isn't coming into the office? How do we have a contentious conversation over Zoom? Mm -hmm. um, and then also, uh, are there any advantages to having conflict remotely? So the return to office and, and for many places, not returning to the office or returning to the office in some kind of a hybrid arrangement has created all sorts of interesting discussions about conflict. So first of all, you know, there are definitely incompatible and opposing needs, wishes and demands when it comes to return to office. So many leaders are really looking for the kind of collisions and collaboration and innovation that come when people share a physical space. So they are very strongly advocating for people to come back to the office. Managers, I think, find it easier to manage when they can just walk around and see what people are doing, or at least they think they can see what people are doing. They have the convenience of being able to have quick conversations. And so they want people back. And then, of course, so many employees are loving the freedom and flexibility. Many people enjoy fewer distractions, uh, shorter commutes, all of these things. So, so first of all, we've had a very good example of how not to have conflict in managing return to office. It's, it, it's just started with, I think, organizations kind of saying, well, we kind of hope you'll maybe come back a bit. And they, they weren't <laughs> clear at all. Uh, they didn't state their position. They didn't do a good job of saying, here's the why, here's what this is about. Here's uh, what our business needs and why this is non-negotiable. So they were very wishy-washy in the first round. Um, then employees kind of re reciprocated by just kind of refusing or not being open or or kind of pretending they were coming in and not coming. So it's started out as a bit of a disaster. Um, we're actually, I think for the most part, you know, leaders have been talking about productivity. It doesn't seem to be that productivity is the issue. If we're talking about individual tasks, 
um, people can be more productive at home. It's not productivity per se. It does seem to be more in this innovation, collaboration, trust, those sorts of things where um, we are seeing issues. Also development. We know young folks are really suffering by not being exposed to the learning opportunities that you get when you're physically there. So it's, it's been another typical conflict where you know, we say we're fighting about one thing when we're really fighting about something else. So that's been a bit of a disaster. So I don't think we've, I don't think we get good marks on how we've had the return to office conversation so far. And so, you know, now that we're at a stage where many, many, many organizations are now saying you need to come into the office three days a week. Um, let's just take that as an example. Imagine you have that. And one of your team members is showing up one day a week and consistently thumbing their nose at the policy, you know, how do you give them feedback? Well, you know, I think the key thing is that you give them effective feedback, which means that you describe their behavior neutrally, not full of judgment. So you don't want to say, Um, You're slacking off, you're being lazy, you're not a team player. Those are all judgments. You want to say, our policy is three days a week. And for the last two weeks, you have been in one day each week. You want to just state the behavior in a way that they will have to agree with you. And then you want to talk about what is the subjective impact of their behavior. So for example, so, you know, you have, you chaired that team meeting remotely when everyone else was in the room. Again, an objective fact. Um, And then you can talk about, so what I saw was that, um, you know, there was body language happening in the room that really needed you to change your tack. And I don't think you were able to see it. And, you know, that's had a big effect on uh, afterward. There was a lot of talk. There was a lot of resistance. People were coming up to me. Um, and, and so, you know, now move to, so, you know, where are the kinds of things, what are the kinds of activities where you're going to commit to being in the office? And so just giving people feedback that's objectively about their behavior, subjectively about what you see as the impact of that behavior, and then handing them the feedback to say, what are you going to do with this? If feedback doesn't change their behavior then you can start to have consequences and make those consequences natural, not some random punitive nasty thing, but instead, you know, if you aren't willing to come in for these cross-functional meetings, I'm going to have to ask somebody else to lead the team because there's too much going on in the casual conversation as the meeting starts. Uh, There are important things happening as people walk out of the meeting there's body language happening during the meeting. And if you aren't able to access any of those things, I don't think you're in the best position. So I'm going to ask somebody else to lead this team if not. So, you know, it, it creates this situation, but turns out I read a study recently that over 40% of people who are not complying with their offices, return to office policies are getting zero feedback at all no consequence, no feedback. They're just because the bosses just don't want to deal with it. Don't want to make people angry. So, you know, it's another great example of people being conflict avoidant, then the problem festers. It's really not good. So if you're facing the situation, you know, have a clear policy, what's negotiable and non-negotiable, 
um, give them objective feedback, um, talk about how their behavior and choices are impacting the team or the business or the customers, and then escalate the consequences in a way that just makes sense and is natural to what their behavior is rather than punitive. Brilliant. That's the nitty gritty, isn't it? Yeah. Talked about. It really is. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I, was, I think it was two or three months back now. Um, some of the major corporations, um, whether, it, whether it was Google or I can't remember exactly, Apple, um, but anyway, the senior management decided that there should be uh, across the board, everyone should come to the office. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that, um, what was it? They, they were sort of unanimous almost in having this policy, which is why they went ahead. Yeah. Uh, and then the employees, over 80%, 80% completely rejected the idea. And and I thought to myself, that is just a complete disconnect because they obviously the, the management was not doing a lot of what you're talking about. Right. Um, in the first place, did they communicate the rationale for that in a way that was sufficient to create understanding and acceptance? Yeah, I, I don't think they have. And I think it's because they don't really know. Um, and, and we don't have good data yet. The problem is the early data was much more about productivity. So if I'm writing lines of code and the research suggests I can write more lines of code or more accurate lines of code working from home, that, that was the easiest information to collect. The information that talks about the, the collision of people with different perspectives that turn into innovative ideas, the impact of long-term trust and collaboration. And that's going to take a while to, to yeah. really get good data. So managers didn't have a, a leg to stand on really yet around what makes return to the office important. And so they just kind of said, well, come back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you to. Okay. That's, if, so. this, if this was a, a video instead of a podcast, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would have been a, a choice <laughs> yes well I, I just see it as such a you know I do see it really correlated with how old-fashioned you know managers are right so and that's not necessarily about age there are old-fashioned managers of every age and there are new and modern managers of every age but these very old-fashioned people who who thought that they were actually, you know, managing people by walking around. They they never were in as much control as they felt they were by measuring FaceTime in the office or things like that. Um, but they felt like they were, and they want to go back to that feeling again. I think, yes, I think you're right. Because I think it's ingrained in a lot of people that uh, they, they want to, well, actually, it becomes an issue of trust as well. Yeah, in themselves, you know, the leaders, the managers uh, need to be able to trust that if they send Susan off, you know, as part of the uh, out of office hybrid, of, that she's going to produce and, you know, trust that Susan, as long as she gets the results that, the, that they've agreed on, then it's fine. Yeah, I think the big problem is that managers have also, you know, failed in a big way at really being able to define and measure outcomes. And so they 
it's a failing of management, not of employees. If managers Mm -hmm. don't know whether someone's performing or not, that's your job as a manager to know, you know, what do you need them to do? How Mm -hmm. do you measure that? How do you know? And if you haven't done that, then, you know, just projecting your mistrust onto the employees is completely unfair. It's you who've dropped the ball, not them. So if you are a manager who just doesn't even know if someone's being productive or not, you know, you're the one who needs to pull up your socks, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. How, um, I like this, this uh, part of the question as well. How do, how do you have a contentious conversation over Zoom? Yeah, so there are some big advantages of having a contentious conversation over Zoom. One is that many of the physical attributes of humans, we are animals. Um, and, And as animals, there are a lot of very physical aspects of conflict that can make it challenging. So I was working with one client who is a physically very large man. Um, and, you know, tends to go beat red when he gets frustrated or angry. And in a room with him, it's very intimidating. And, you know, you can see people just giving up because it is physically very intimidating. And, you know, he commented, interesting that his own self-awareness went up, that since things had moved to Zoom, he noticed people weren't listening to him as much anymore. (laughs) And I thought, well, you know, good. Now you're realizing that you don't have this sort of artificial form of power. So, you know, it's physically safer. It's less triggering, um, at least in some aspects, to have conflict with a little bit more of that physical distance and safety. Um, Another thing that I really love about um, the possibility of remote conflict is you can take notes and, you know, put little stickies on your screen that help you, you know, you can document, here's an example I wanted to share to make something more objective as opposed to just being judgmental or throwing out all these litany of of uh, problems. Um, you know, you can do a variety of things. You know, if you're in a meeting room, the last thing you want to do is kind of have notes written on your hand. About, about like, what did I <laughs> kind of looks a bit odd, but uh, you know, if you're having conflict remotely, that's very, very easy to do. The other thing is that there's more of a schedule to having conflict on Zoom. Um, you know, you're in the office. Sometimes we've all had that awkward moment where you come around a corner and that person that you're in the middle of some tense interaction with, they're standing there and and you're like, is it, you know, is it too late? Can I turn around? Have they seen me? Can I go the other way? Um, because you're not ready yet. You're not emotionally ready to have the conversation. You haven't yet thought through what you want to say. You're not ready to make it you know, a little calmer. Well, when you're having conflict remotely, there's more of a scheduling um, component to it. So you can get your thoughts collected, you can sleep on it, you can, you know, schedule it for a time when you can have the conversation productively. So I think we, the, the problem is, because the vast majority of us dislike conflict and avoid conflict, it's a lot easier to avoid conflict in a remote or hybrid team because you don't come around the corner and bump into someone. You can go a long time of just, you know, yes, you join team meetings and each of you are in some small little box, but you can, you know, you can get away with not confronting the issue for quite a long time. 
you also lose the subtle cues that there's something wrong. So if you're physically together and you've annoyed someone, they will tend to drop their eye contact and that will be a good clue for you. Uh-oh, I mean, I guess I'm in the doghouse. I didn't know. You will not have those cues if you're remote. So there's there are things that make conflict less uh, frequent, less common. Um, when we are remote, it's a problem. I think we can get into a lot of conflict debt. Things can pile up. Um, but on the other hand, I think, hey, this is a great way to process many conflicts because we can be more prepared, be a little bit safer, um, have a, a safe space and a safe time to have a conversation. So there are pros and cons. Um, but what we can't do, what we definitely can't do is just avoid uh, avoid that kind of conflict because we're remote. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's a good point. I mean, everything you say, I can I can relate to and have experienced myself. And my uh, <clears throat> when I work with executive teams, uh, I'm also thinking of uh, when you when you have a Zoom s- scenario, then is it also not difficult because people feel inhibited because you're there's another 10 people in the room um, or uh, you just feel self, self-conscious. self Whereas if you decide to have that conversation with the other individual that you disagree with, you can take it offline. You can take it on a one-on-one Zoom. Yeah. Know? So for me, it depends. If, if the conflict is about the issue, um, it's perfectly fine to have that Uh, conflict constructively with a whole bunch of people there. Mm -hmm. So if if that's the case, you're saying you're advocating for, uh, you know, a live customer event, um, you know, help me understand where you're coming from on that. What do you see as the big advantages? Take me through your thought process. And, and, you know, after you've had the time to kind of understand where they're coming from, you can say, you know, I disagree I really worry that uh, an in-person customer event is, you know, X, Y, and Z. So if, if it's a conflict about an issue, um, absolutely have it in the moment, um, uh, you know, do it constructively, but if it's an interpersonal issue, so I feel like you've cut me off three times during this meeting, um, or um, you know your question really made me think that you're doubting, uh, doubting this work, and I, I thought we were all on the same page. Like if it's something that you feel is um, going to be a little bit more emotionally wrought, something more sensitive, then what I would just say is, you know, an email as soon as the call ends to just say. Uh, I would, I need a few minutes of your time, um, you know, just want to share how things are landing with me, um, that kind of thing. So you can absolutely have um, a, a second private opportunity to, uh, to discuss those sorts of things makes, makes perfect sense. Yeah, I understand. Also facilitation of those group discussions as well can be very helps a lot (laughs) if you've got good facilitation what i've experienced a lot of time is 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 senior teams often don't uh in particular senior teams not sort of the uh, up and coming younger but quite senior teams don't have a problem so much with this but the the real senior teams tend not to have a facilitator at all yeah Uh, and it's usually the chairman or the CEO who who does the um, 
they call it facilitation, but what it really yes. is is steering the agenda, which is yeah. fine if it's explicit. But uh, yes. you know, um, unfortunately, we're um, we've got uh, we've got some time left, and I really want to get to this third question that okay. is juicy for us. But before <laughs> that, I want to just say. Uh, to the audience and uh, remind them from the intro um, that I am, my guest today is Leanne Davey. Uh, she's a New York Times bestselling author of a number of books. Uh, she contributes to the Harvard Business Review. She works with major corporations uh, in an advisory role. And uh, she also has a PhD in organizational psychology which is uh, helpful. <laughs> it, it is, absolutely. <laughs> I think a PhD a in psychology is helpful in every domain of life. Yes, yes. Okay, so moving on now to the role um, of emotion um, and how it relates to conflict. Uh, conflict certainly can lead to some emotional reactions. You know, it comes with the territory, really. Um, how are we supposed to deal with emotions in others? Are some emotional reactions more appropriate than others? Uh, what, what if it's me who's having the emotion? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. You might have to remind me of those as we go along. But yeah. so let's just start with, um, you know, we mentioned earlier the idea of like removing emotions from the equation. And I just don't think that that's something that we want to do or can do. Humans are emotional decision makers. Emotions are critical to our memory systems, to our learning systems. So um, trying to pretend uh, that we can remove emotion from the workplace is futile. And, and it's it's naive, but it's also um, it's also a risk because my experience is the people who like to pretend that there is not emotion in the decision are the ones who are held hostage by their emotions and by the emotions in the room because when you don't recognize or admit the emotional component of the decision, you have little control over it. When you say these are the factual pieces of the argument. These are the emotional pieces of it. These are the values and beliefs that are in play. When you have those all transparently on the table, then you can choose the mix and say, all right, given all those things, how do we want to weight them and what's the right decision? So I just treat emotions as a data set. Um, you know, these are interesting. What are they telling us? Emotions in and of themselves are seldom what's valuable um, in decision-making. They're only valuable as symptoms. So much like I, I use the metaphor of pain. So pain is useful to a human, um, not because it's diagnostic, because pain often is not diagnostic. It's often pain that is not you know, directly linked to where the issue is. Um, but it is very helpful as a symptom to say, whoa, there's some injury being done here. We better stop and figure it out. So when you see emotions in the workplace, think of it very much like seeing pain. Um, it, it's not anything that helps you diagnose what the issue is, but it does help you understand there is an issue and you need to stop and pay attention to it. So 
that's how I think about it. The other metaphor I use all the time is if someone is getting emotional at work, I always talk about them as the dragon breathing fire. But I promise you that if the dragon is breathing fire, it's because they're protecting treasure. And that's what we miss with emotions in the workplace. And instead, what we do is we go back to facts and we go back to putting bricks in the wall, bricks of facts, this statistic and this report says this and our last month's, you know, footfalls per store are this. And none of those things is going to help you understand or get to that treasure and be able to, you know, slay the dragon. So, um, you know, a really, really, really important thing is to, in that moment when someone's getting emotional, not shut them down, not contradict them, not say it'll be okay, because that is also invalidating, but instead to ask what I call open drawbridge questions, the kinds of questions that allow you to get in there and find out what's the treasure they're protecting. So questions like, um, what is this evoking for you? How are you thinking about this? What do you see is at stake in this situation? What are we not paying enough attention to? These are open drawbridge questions yeah, that questions. the answers will allow you to figure out what is the treasure they're protecting. And amazingly, once you can start to have a conversation about that treasure, and, and if you want something practical and pragmatic, um, I don't tend to talk about dragons and treasure when I'm with an executive team. Uh, what I do ask is, okay, this is a really difficult situation. You know, what is the most important criteria we need to use to make this call? When you ask about what is the single most important criteria, they will they will tell you their treasure. <laughs> that will be what comes out. Um, so emotions, the fire is just a very, very, very useful piece of information to help you know there's treasure buried here. A conflict is always about the treasure. It's not about the bricks in the wall. Um, and we get distracted. Uh, we, we get stuck in two different worlds on two sides of this brick wall all the time as we build up. And, and you need nothing more than to visit someone's Facebook page during COVID and fights about masks or no masks or vaccines or no vaccines to see you know, putting more bricks in the wall, in the comments, adding a study that says one <laughs> thing or another, um, it doesn't change anyone's opinion. So it's really, really, really important that you ask those questions and try and understand what is this about for them? That's very, uh, that's very good timing there with uh, you, the mute button and your coughing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yes, dealing with COVID for a second time. And uh, the first time I had COVID, uh, I guess a year ago, uh, it didn't give me a cough at all. This time it has definitely decided to hang about in my lungs and give me a cough. But the mute button at the right moment protects the uh, audience's ears from my, <laughs> my very unladylike cough. Yeah, well, th thank you. Um, it's it's so interesting that I'm I'm sort of like uh, I think there's there's at least for some people I'm one of them. There's a tendency now to be a bit paranoid about oh my god 
I've got a bit of a cough. What yes. is that? <laughs> Yeah, it's just a bit of a cough. That's all. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I thought I had this time. I, you know, we've had so many things come through the house, uh, you know, over the past year, and you just immediately test. And and this time it was the time that I didn't even think about it. I it was kind of off my mind. And um, yep, lo and behold. (laughs) Yeah, I think I lost track of the number of times my sister's uh, contracted COVID, (laughs) but she just takes it in a stride. She just yeah. was a bit rotten for a day or so, and then, and then she's still testing positive. Is that right? Positive, the way yeah. she got it, but yeah. it is fine. Yeah, so, you know, for a number of days and before that little thing goes down or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, getting back to the topic, this is what I found that if nothing else, and people listening to this um, conversation. Leanne, that uh, they actually have pause for thought there. There's some very interesting concept you put out there and a way of, I think, ideally looking at in a new or different perspective at the nature of feelings or emotions mm-hmm. and the role they play. Um, when I listen to you talk about um, data, um, I remember Go- Daniel Goleman uh, starting off Back in, gosh, was it 95 or 85? 95. Uh, he was the first person really to talk about emotions as data. Yeah, um, it's so true. Yeah, well, it may be, but there's a, there was something that I had a little problem with when you were... Okay, good. Tell me. Yeah, conflict. <laughs> Yay! Conflict. Um, no, but I, I, what, what, what was it that, I balk at the idea that it's just data because I think emotions are so fundamental to living and quality of life and um, health and God knows I could go on and on and on. Uh, Your interior is made up certainly of thoughts. Uh It's also made up of feelings and emotions. Um, And I think... That, that it, I totally agree with you. It, it, you have to look at your own data as well. Mm-hmm. You have to look at, wow, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm really tight on this one. My chest is, I can't breathe. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I recommend is because we aren't good at dealing with emotions, um, you may be having an emotional response in a team meeting and, and, you know, other people are getting frustrated with you or they're contradicting you or they're just ignoring it and hoping it'll go away. So one of the things I say is you can ask yourself those open drawbridge questions. You know, where where in my body am I feeling this? What am I noticing? Is it my palms are getting sweaty or yeah. my heart is racing? Um, and then asking yourself, what is this triggering for me? How am I interpreting what they're saying? What story am I telling myself? So you ask yourself the questions and as you come up with the answers, put them back into the room. So simply saying, I've noticed as this conversation is happening, I've noticed my heart is racing. And I think it's because I'm starting to hear for the first time that people are losing confidence in this project. And I'm imagining having to go back to my team who's been working so hard on this and to to tell them. Um, So you know, can we just slow the roll for a minute here? You know, can we 
talk about whether that is the case, you know, are, are folks losing confidence? If so, can we talk about, you know, what's that about? You know, is there a chance to remediate it? Um, but, but, you know, you have to know that I feel very invested in this. And so I'm going to need your help to kind of stay with this conversation as opposed to, you know, catastrophizing here. Well, I think that's what you just said as an example is, is a good example of how, for me anyway, I said I had a slight problem, that, that it is more than just data because in the communication of, of those things that result from you being your own, uh, what's the word, your own uh, uh, diet. Uh, when you're doing, you're applying this to yourself. This is uh, this self-analysis, if you like. Yeah. Self-awareness. Um, that when you communicate that, it brings to life the the reality yeah because otherwise if you're it's a it's hard to bring something to life and make it very real if you're not actually expressing emotions and feelings it's yeah I, i'm a huge advocate I, I simply refer to it as another data set because i think many times in corporate environments we discount the value of emotions yes. rather than saying look, you are ignoring a very important set of data if you are ignoring the emotional story. Um, and, and of course, to me, the emotions themselves, that's just the fire. That's not nearly as important as the fact that the fire is what alerts you to the fact that there's treasure. Where we really want to get to is the fact that we have different values, different beliefs, different narratives, different motives. That's where conflict is born and it is the only place that conflict will be resolved. So another line I use in the book is facts don't solve fights. And so if you keep trying to have a fight using facts, you will get nowhere because conflicts are born and will resolve only at the layer of values and beliefs and, and narratives and that sort of thing. So yeah, you know, feelings and emotions are very useful because they are the clues that we are getting close to values and beliefs that are somehow being encroached, that the treasure feels at risk, um, but not necessarily as valuable, inherently valuable in and of themselves, but it's in, in what they tell us about how we're interpreting situations uh, that's really, really valuable in conflict. Facts aren't going to solve fights. That makes sense. And, and surely, again, it, to, to my point, is makes uh, it creates understanding in others that when you're communicating openly like that, it, it creates understanding in others of, of, of how you're dealing with this or not dealing with this. Uh, and it actually then allows for the conflict to be worked through because it's on the table. It's not held back. It's not, there's right. not bricks and, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Otherwise, you're just two people standing on other sides of a brick wall, right? And you're not going to get anywhere. And so many organizations sit in that position. Mm. Um, they haven't made the tough decisions 
they kind of <laughs> suffer in solitude. They don't make the hard trade-offs. They don't resolve a conflict between two individuals. Um, you know, it's it's really bad for our productivity. It's bad for our innovation. It's bad for engagement and trust. And it's bad for our stress levels. Yeah. So there's there are so many problems that stem from our um, both our unwillingness to have conflict and then our lack of skills to have it productively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm remembering a year. It could have been 1993. That's a long time ago now. Isn't it, it is a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> I think it's like yeah, it's ten years ago. No, <laughs> it's thirty. Um, but there was whatever it was. It was in the 90s. Maybe it was tw- when um, the CEO of AT and T, I think, was fired um, because he lacked the emotional fortitude to um, deal with an individual uh, who was being very disruptive in his senior team. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the whole point of what I'm saying is, and the whole point of the, there was an article in Forbes or Fortune at the time, um, the statistics showed that a lot, that um, there was avoidance of dealing with the yeah. uncomfortable uh, you know, and so this, you had the old scenario of well, uh, we there's no one is indispensable, but right. apparently, you know, sometimes they are indispensable, you know, because you don't want to deal with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. In this case, it, you know, the CEO making the mistake of thinking the person was indispensable made the conclusion that um, he was dispensable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a CEO that doesn't have the fortitude to deal with some of those situations is not going to be very valuable. No. And then uh, we haven't got time now, but there's also the discussion about, um, because we're going to be wrapping up, the discussion about um, ego, even from, if you like, a spiritual point of view of how detached you can be from your own feelings so that you're more easily able to treat your own feelings and emotions as data yeah. because, because you, you're not so attached. To the- right, right. Yeah. So if you can get to the point where you have this reaction of like, oh, I'm feeling this. How interesting. You know, I wonder what that is about. And you can kind of hold it at arm's length and yeah. you know, shift it around and look at it from different angles. Um, so much more is open to you. So much more choice um, and agency is available when you can begin to understand that your feelings are not you. Um, They are one data set you can make use of, but there are others. Absolutely. As I said, that's a longer conversation (laughs) to elaborate on that. Um, But yeah, you mentioned the word choice again. uh, You you do have more choice when you... uh, are not so attached to a particular line of thought. Yes. Anyway, um, we agree. We do. <laughs> okay, great. Ironically, in a discussion <laughs> about conflict. Yeah, and uh, I remember I moderated a panel in uh, Vienna three years ago, four years ago, and the guy who's he was the CEO of the company that was putting the conference on. He was he was very upset because he said, "I want more conflict." This French guy, I got, I'm not going to try and. <laughs> um, I want more conflict, 
Um, but I said, well, but that's all very well, but we're going to have to cre uh, create it artificially because what happens if people do agree with each other on this topic? I don't care. He said, I want more conflict. Yep. Uh, well, remember. there isn't, a, he, he's right. There isn't enough conflict. And, you know, certainly um, when there's not, there are techniques to say, okay, let's take, we all agree. Now let's pick a stakeholder that would see this very differently. You yes. know, how do we advocate through their lens, right? Um, you know, we all agree this is what's going to happen. What's a scenario where our assumptions would not hold? Um, you know, there are ways to generate productive tension that help you make a better decision. Even if you were on to the right decision at the beginning, it's a better decision if you've done it, having considered different scenarios, different stakeholders. Um, so, you know, generating that conflict to optimize the decision and improve the strength of the decision um, he's right. We need more of that. Yep, I agree. So um, we're out of time. How do people uh, get in touch with you? What contact information would you like? To <laughs> yeah, so and getting in touch with me. You yeah. mentioned the book as well. Which one are yeah. you referring to? Yeah, so The Good Fight um, is the book with all of these techniques, making the case for why conflict is important, but then a variety of tools you can implement with your own team that are all provided um, in, in the book. Um, then I guess a couple places, if you're looking for correspondence, uh, LinkedIn would be the place. Uh, I try and use my LinkedIn to have some of the most important conversations we need to have about the workplace. Um, and so you have a newsletter there you can subscribe to. And then my website is just leannedavy.com. That blog has uh, 11 years of weekly posts searchable for all sorts of free tools around how do I deal with my passive aggressive colleague? I have uh, now a collection, I think, of 13 different forms of messed up bosses and how to cope with them. And so there's, there's uh, only there's, 13, like, only 13 so far. Yeah. Um, my taxonomy continues to grow, but um, there are now well over 600 uh, articles and resources there that are all available for folks to use. So um, LinkedIn for, for um, conversation and leannedavy.com for to search the database and, uh, and read more about the work and the book is a good fight the good bites the good fight yes oh the good fight <laughs> the good bites that'll be my cookbook that yeah. sounds good i i should i am a baker i could definitely oh, really? follow up the good fight with the good bites <laughs> oh uh, we could have if we'd known that about it, our love of, of cooking and yeah. food we'd, we'd really have a whole other podcast yeah, I know, but we wouldn't have got through this. <laughs> True. The good fight, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> all right, and very important, spell your name, please. Oh, yes, that's a big challenge. So L-I-A-N-E, that's Leanne, uh, and Davey, D-A-V-E-Y. It's not good when you have both a first and last name that are open to many, many spellings, but L-I-A-N-E-D-A-V-E-Y and just add .com on the end to get my website or LinkedIn is uh, is just Leanne Davey. There's only one other Leanne Davey spelled in such a bizarre way in the world. She's in Nottingham. Um, so hopefully you'll find me. I think she's a rave EDM DJ. 
So oh. uh, maybe I'll meet her someday. <laughs> no, we haven't talked about uh, any possible music interests. <laughs> I'm sure there are all EDM music, but uh, <laughs> I do. Sort of. Um, anyway, um, Leanne, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Mm -hmm. So nice talking with you, Michael. Oh, you're welcome. This has been a really interesting um, down-to-earth conversation about this topic, which is so important. Um, so I hope everyone loved it, as I did. And uh, again, thank you. And uh, all the best in the future. I hope we stay in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. Okie doke. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.